the following years. Part 1 How Britain found herself in such a predicament that the question arose of whether to seek terms from a position of great weakness, which would, in effect, have come close to an acknowledgement of defeat, has, of course, been extensively examined and analysed ever since. Already in 1940, a widely read and influential polemic, Guilty Men, laid the blame squarely on those in the British government who had chosen the dangerous and ultimately self-defeating road to appeasement of Hitler during the 1930s. Leading characters in the cast of the guilty were the austere, prim, but sharp and incisive Neville Chamberlain, Prime Minister between May 1937 and May 1940, and the extremely tall, somewhat humourless Foreign Secretary Lord Halifax, a former Viceroy of India and seasoned diplomat, known, for his combination of religious piety and enthusiasm for fox-hunting, as the Holy Fox, who retained his post in Churchill's administration. History has never forgiven them. The shame of Munich in 1938, when Britain and her French ally bowed to Hitler's bullying and handed him a substantial part of Czechoslovakia, has remained forever associated with Chamberlain. It is often conveniently forgotten that appeasement, down to Munich, had been widely popular in Britain, even among those who, in the light of subsequent events, came to be among its chief detractors and most severe critics. The British government, in seeking to appease Hitler, undoubtedly made grave errors of judgment. Even so, these have to be located within the framework of the barely surmountable problems besetting Britain, as the looming danger posed by Hitler gradually came to be recognised. Britain's debilitating structural problems in the interwar period revolved around the interlinked triad of the economy, the empire, and rearmament. Between them, they ensured that when the dictators began to flex their muscles, an enfeebled Britain was in poor shape to contest their growing might. Britain emerged from the First World War, still a great power, though mainly beneath the surface a weakened one. Still a world creditor, with loans on paper outstanding to the Empire and her war allies of £1.85 billion in 1920, her debts to America nevertheless totaled $4.7 billion. It was an indicator of a shift in the financial balance of power, which would only, over time, reveal Britain's growing dependency upon her transatlantic cousin. Even the Royal Navy, still the world's largest, now had to reckon with a future rival in the rapidly growing navy of the United States. And difficulties in India, Egypt, and closer to home, Ireland, were stretching limited military resources. With the dominions of Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa also showing signs of growing independence, the empire was starting to crumble. The magnitude of the problems was in good measure concealed during the 1920s as recovery from the wartime trauma gradually took place despite numerous buffetings. Even so, beneath the surface all was not well. The key industries which had formed the basis of Britain's pre-war prosperity, coal, iron and steel, shipbuilding, textiles, were all struggling to combat long-term decline. 
unemployment was relatively high throughout the decade. Britain was importing more and exporting less. Still, alongside the stagnation or decline, there were signs of new industries taking root, and outside the run-down industrial towns and cities, the later 1920s saw an all-too-brief upsurge of hope, confidence, and relative prosperity. The onset of the world economic crisis in 1929 was rapidly to change all that. It brought economic growth in the industrial world to a juddering halt. Social misery and political turmoil followed. In Britain, the repercussions of the Wall Street stock market crash of October 1929 ushered in political crisis and lasting economic depression. But indirectly, the global consequences were to prove far more threatening. In the Far East, the swift emergence after 1931...